0: Welcome to the first episode of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, the show where we discuss those European figures that you maybe have heard of, but really don't know too much about. I'm your host, Conor Bolanos, and today we're going to be talking about one of the most important figures in Eastern Europe in the 15th century. The last emperor and autocrat of the Romans, the despot of Morea, Constantine XI Paleologos. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Constantine is the very last emperor of Byzantium, the continuation of the Western Roman Empire after it was split into two and after Rome was sacked and torn apart by barbarians and the various struggles and conflicts that occurred thereafter. But the Byzantine Empire survived in Eastern Europe for so much longer, up until 1453, which we'll talk about later. So before we get into the nitty-gritty details of the reign of Constantine XI and why he's so important to European history, we need to first start with the very basics about his personal life. Constantine was born on the 8th of February, 1405, in Constantinople as the 8th of 10 children to then-Emperor Manuel II. As the 8th children of 10, he was never expected to fulfill a major role in the empire, such as emperor, which he would come to be eventually. However, he spent most of his childhood in Constantinople under the supervision of his parents and being taught by the famous philosopher at the time, Gemistus Pletho. Um... Since he was never really meant to be an emperor, though, like many of the nobility at the time, they were expected to, however, marry off. And as such, Constantine did so d- two different times. The first time he married was on the 1st of July, 1428, to Theodora Toko, the niece of Karl I Toko of Epirus, which was a con- kingdom at the time, actually more so of a duchy at the time, in the north of Greece. She died, however, while giving birth to a stillborn daughter in November of 1429, and his second marriage was on the 27th of July, 1441, to Caterina Gattilusio, the daughter of the Dorino of Lesbos. But she also died in August of 1442 after suffering a miscarriage. Well, normally this would be a problem for an empire, as having an emperor with no heirs and no wives usually led to succession crises. However, the events of 1453 wouldn't make it so any succession crisis crisis would be invalid and unnecessary to have it all. After his childhood years, Constantine would become the despot of Morea, one of the provinces of the Byz- Byzantine Empire at the time. But before this, he served more minor roles as the governor of Celembria, a city within Byzantine the Byzantine Empire at the time, and also regent of the empire for three years while John was away on the Council of Florence. For those of you who don't know what the Council of Florence was, it was a conference between the Eastern and Western churches at the time, of Christianity, of course, that sought to reconcile the two after the Great Schism. However, while ultimately futile, it was something that was being participated in by the emperor at the time, and as such, he ruled as regent in its stead. After John came back, however, Constantine aided his brother in consolidating Byzantine control over Morea, campaigning against the Latin princes of the Principality of Achaea, who still held parts of Morea during the time, as this duchy was created following the Fourth Crusade, which saw the breakup of the Byzantine Empire into various Latin duchies in the Latin Empire and other such. And then after these campaigns, Morea did come under the control of Byzantium, with the few exceptions of some Venetian coastal cities. So after becoming despot of Morea in 1428, he ruled from the fortress and palace in Mystra, a city near ancient Sparta. And during his reign, the city became a cultural and artistic center that even rivaled that of Constantinople, a tribute to how successful his reign was as despot. And during this time as well, he also strengthened the defensive positions of the area by reconstructing a wall across the Isthmus of Cornet called the Hexamillion, which would come to play an important role in the near future against the Ottoman Empire. In the summer of 1444, Constantine decided that Moria wasn't just enough to conquer, and as such, he decided to march out to Attica, to the Latin Duchy of Athens. And in doing so, he conquered Thebes and the city of Athens itself, forcing the Florentine duke at the time, Nereo II, a vassal of the Ottoman sultan, to pay him tribute. Now, the sultan wasn't a fan of the switching of sides and the fact that the tribute that was paid to him was now paying the Constantine, some upstart relic of the Byzantine Empire that's still managing to survive despite the multiple enemies it's had and the economic decline it's been facing for years. And as a result, the sultan Murad II at the time led an army of fifty to 60,000 men into Greece to put an end to Constantine's moves. His purpose was not to conquer so much Constantine, but to rather teach him a lesson for what he did. And on, the November, on November 27th, 1446, Murad and his army reached the Heximilian, which I previously stated was rebuilt by Constantine during his reign. Constantine at first attempted to parley with the sultan, but according to the historian Leonikos Onodiles, his terms were, quote, not moderate, for he demanded that the Isthmus be allowed to stand as it was for him and that he get to keep all the sultan's lands beyond it that he had subjected. And to Constantine, these terms were unacceptable. And as a result, Constantine and his brother Thomas braced for an attack at the Hexamillion. While the wall could hold against most traditional medieval attacks at the time, the Ottoman Empire was using bombards, large guns, which were used specifically to break down defensive walls such as these, to supplement the usual traditional engines and scaling ladders. The bombards ended up breaching the Hexamillion on the 10th of December, 1446. And as Murad's janissaries poured through the opening, the defenders panicked and... And while Constantine and Thomas attempted to rally the soldiers, they failed and barely escaped with their lives to Mistra. After breaching through the Hexamillion and the retreat of Constantine, Murad ended up splitting his forces, giving one part of his army to his advisor at the time, Torahan, while leading the other part along the southern coast of the southern shore of the Gulf of Cornith, plundering and destroying as his troops advanced. And as a result, 60,000 people were taken prisoner by the sultan's forces and sold into slavery, something which would occur once again in 1453. And Constantine and his brother Thomas, as a result of this, were forced to pay tributes themselves to the Ottoman Sultan. You're just tuning in, welcome to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're talking about Constantine XI of Byzantium. So while Constantine would come to end up paying tribute to the Sultan and would see a general demise in his position, while Constantine ended up facing a humiliating defeat at the hands of Murad II, he would not remain a lowly despot of Morea forever. Eventually, his brother in 1449, John, the emperor at the time, ended up dying heirless, And as a result, a dispute emerged between Constantine and his brother Demetrius over the throne. While Demetrius drew support from the political faction and the, in the Byzantine emperor at the time that opposed the union of the Orthodox and Catholic churches, the Empress Helena, who was the, acting as the regent of the empire while a new king was being chosen, supported Constantine. As a result of this divide, they went to, ironically, the Sultan Murad II, who had just beaten Constantine in his previous battles, to arbitrate the disagreement. And once again, even more ironically, Murad II would choose Constantine as the successor to his brother John as the emperor of the Roman Empire of the Eastern Roman Empire. And, and as such, on the 6th of January 1449, Constantine would be crowned in the cathedral in Mistra by a local bishop. Well, it was rare, but not unprecedented for someone to be crowned in a provincial city it's been done before as was done by two of Constantine's previous successors however usually they had a follow up coronation in the capital of Constantinople however Constantine would be an exception because the patriarch at the time Gregory III was a unionist and was shunned by most of the clergy as a result and Constantine knew that to receive his crown from Gregory would only add fuel to the existing fires of religious discord that existed within the capital as a result of the great schism and as such, he only had that one coronation in Mistra. In, in However, Constantine's reign, as has been proven before when he was despot of Moria, was not so much a peaceful reign. When Murad died in 1451, he was succeeded by his 19-year-old son, Mehmed II, who we today know as more famously Mehmed the Conqueror. And he was obsessed with the conquest, of, as his name implies, of Constantinople. And as a result of of Mehmed II's advancements in signing treaties with Hungary and Venice in regards to neutrality should the Ottomans ever invade the Byzantine state, Constantine responded by threatening to release Prince Orhan, a contender to the Ottoman throne, unless Mehmed met some of his demands. However, um, Mehmed considered Constantine in doing this to have broken the truce between the two nations, and following the winter of 1451-52, Mehmed built a new fortress on the European side of the Bosphorus, called Rumahil Asari, just north of the city. This was also known as the Throatcutter Fortress, because it essentially provided the Ottomans full control over communications and supply through the Bosphorus Strait. The construction of this fortress complemented the Andaluhu Fortress on the Anatolian side of the Bosphorus, which was previously built by the Sultan Bayezid I in 1393-1394. To, to Constantine this was his worst fear, and it confirmed that Mehmed II had clear intentions to siege and take Constantinople and sought to prepare his defenses accordingly. So in preparation for the defenses of Constantinople, Constantine managed to raise the funds to stockpile food for the upcoming siege and also repair the old Theodosian walls. But the poor state of the Byzantine economy did not allow for him to raise the necessary army to defend the city against the Ottoman army details of that we're going to get into a bit more later and desperate but desperate for any type of military assistance, Const- Constantine appealed to the West, reaffirming the union of the Eastern and Roman churches signed at the Council of Florence, a condition the Catholic Church imposed before any help would be provided. However the union was opposed and criticized by the strong anti-union bloc of his subjects, many who of which were quoted to have said better to see the turban of the Turks reigning in the center of the city than the Latin miter Even more unfortunate for Constantine, despite his affirmation of the Council of Florence, the Pope didn't have much influence over many of the Catholic nations as he thought he would have. Many of the eastern states at the time, having been recently defeated by Murad II in the Battle of Arna, simply didn't send aid to Byzantium, or many nations such as Venice and Hungary have already signed treaties that limited their aid to Byzantium in the event of a battle. And as a result, Constantine sought assistance for both his brothers and Moria, but Mehmed prepared for this eventuality. And as a result, an Ottoman invasion of the peninsula occurred in 1452 to tie down the troops there. Despite these unfortunate events for Constantine, however, there was some aid that would come his way. And one of these being an accomplished soldier from Genoa, Giovanni Giostaniani who would come to play a pivotal role in the defense of Constantinople against the Ottoman forces. He arrived with 400 men from Genoa and 300 other men from Giannus Chios in January of 1453. He was a specialist in defending wall cities, and as a result was given the immediate overall command of the defense of the land walls by the emperor himself. And around the same time, there were numerous Venetian ships that happened to be present in the Golden Horn, an inlet of the Bosphorus Strait that offered their services to the emperor at the time, barring contrary orders from Venice. And even Pope Nicholas himself undertook to send three ships laden with provisions, which set sail near the end of March. However, this was the only aid that would really ever come to Constantinople. Before we get into the details of the upcoming battle and siege of Constantinople, let's first take a look at the strengths and strategies that both the Ottomans and the Byzantines were employing at the time. To start with the Byzantines, the Byzantine army defending Constantinople at the time was relatively small, enormously small compared to what the Ottomans ended up bringing to the field, with the Byzantine army totaling about 7,000 men. 2,000 of those men were foreigners, mainly from Genoa and Venice. At the onset of the siege, there were also probably fewer than 50,000 people living within the city's walls, including refugees from the surrounding area, which had been ravaged by Turkish forces before they finally laid siege upon the city. However, they were also joined by the Turkish commander Dorgano, who was in Constantinople in the pay of the emperor, who was also guarding one of the city's quarters on the seaward side with the Turks in its pay. Another sizable aspect of the Byzantine defenses was the Genoan contingent, being led by Giovanni, who I mentioned earlier came and was a, def- was a specialist in the defense of walled cities at the time. This army was well trained and well equipped, while the rest of the army normally consisted of, of small numbers with well trained soldiers, and numerous armed civilians, sailors, and even volunteer forces from foreign communities, and most finally, monks. Before we talk about the battle and siege of Constantinople itself, it's important that we out- lay out what exactly the Byzantine and Ottoman strengths and strategies were going into this battle. At the start of the battle, the Byzantine army at the time was numbering around 7,000 men, 2,000 of whom were foreigners. In addition, there were about 30,000 civilians who were pressed into service at the time, either melting down gold coins, manning different different portions of the wall or doing supply runs to different garr- garrisons around the city due to their lower numbers the byzantines weren't able to fully garrison the entire of the Theodosian walls these walls were at the time the strongest in existence and it was often said that byzant that the city of constantinople itself was the most well-defended city in europe so despite the fact that the byzantines were outnumbered Basically 10 to 1 in regards to actual amount of troops, it was still very plausible for the Byzantines to be able to hold out against the Ottomans, especially if, as the Byzantines hoped would happen, reinforcements arrived from the Venetians, the Gionese, or another Italian state who could help them against the Ottoman forces. So, as such, in regards to the overall positioning of the fortresses, Giovanni was stationed to the north of the emperor, the emperor himself being at the center of the Theodigian walls. It was at the center where an attack was feared the most, and as a result, that's where the emperor and the most elite of his troops ended up being. To the left of the emperor and further south, the commanders Cattaneo with the Gionese troops and his cousin Theopilius who were guarding the Pegae Gate with Greek soldiers. Outside of those main Theodosian walls, the sea- there were also the seawalls, but they were manned much more sparsely, mainly due to the fact that the Byzantines did not expect any naval attacks to occur from the Ottomans, especially since the Byzantines had put a chain across the Golden Horn, which I mentioned earlier was an inlet of the Bosphorus Strait. In addition, the Byzantines had two tactical reserves within the city, one in the Petrodictor district, district just behind the land walls and one near the Church of the Holy Apostles. For all of you just tuning in, this is History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, and we're currently talking about Constantine XI and the composition and strategy of the Byzantine forces going into the siege and battle of Constantinople. Now, going into the Ottoman strengths going into this battle, the Ottomans, as I mentioned earlier, outnumber the Venetian forces by almost 10 to 1, with estimates being that there were around 80,000 Ottoman troops and around 67 different artillery guns at the city at the time, most infamously the Basilica, this massive gun that took three, 30 minutes to reload and that, fought a, and that would fire a cannonball that weighed 1,200 tons. It was also said to eventually break from its own recoil and had to often be cooled down with olive oil because it would often overheat. In regards to strategy, the Ottomans were planning to rely mainly on sheer numbers and the amount of guns to break down the Theodosian walls and storm the city. However, more often than not, the Ottoman guns were unable to cause long-term damage to the Theodosian walls. As 30,000 civilians being drafted to repair walls, more often than not was quick enough to get the job done by the time the Ottomans could fire the guns again, making it almost impossible for the Ottomans to fully destroy the Theodosian walls sufficiently enough to allow a effective attack. And as a result, the Ottomans made two different frontal, two to, two to three different frontal assaults against the walls themselves, the scaling ladders and other types of siege equipment at the time. After the failure of both of these frontal assaults, Mehmed II ended up extending a parlay offer to Constantine, offering him the ability to escape with his life and possessions, assuming that he surrendered the city. However, Constantine responded no, saying he would die within the city if it came to it. And while initially it seemed that the Byzantines were successfully defending against the Ottomans, a real threat would come when sounding like out of fiction itself. As I mentioned earlier, the Byzantines had put a chain across the Golden Horn, preventing the Ottoman ships, which were about 100 in size, from effectively going through surrounding the city. However, Mehmed II built a a road of greased logs up a hill and dragged his ships out of the water, over the hill, and onto the other side of the chain bypassing it and cutting off supplies from a neutral nearby Gionese colony. with the loss of supplies from the nearby Gionese colony, the defenses of the city itself were hampered, and the people of it were demoralized. Not to mention, strategically, they had to move forces from the main wall that was faced in Mehmed II to go defend the seawall in the event that the Ottomans attempted to attack the walls by the nearby inlet. And this resulted in Mehmed being able to overcome the walls and the forces on it in a final all-out assault. And in doing so, he managed to wound Giovanni, the main commander of the Byzantine forces at the time, and in doing so caused a general rout of the city. Now, in regards to Constantine himself, there are many ways that Constantine is said to have befallen to most Constantine died doing as he said he would do earlier to member the second fighting until his death It's said that he threw off his colors and fought like a normal soldier until he died on the battlefields However, others say that an angel saved him turned him into marble and placed him underneath the Theodosian walls waiting for the day Where Constantinople would once again be retaken by the Christians and thus ends the story of Constantine the 11th the last Roman and autocrat of the Roman Empire.